0: Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT
1: Speaks Out, we're going to visit a subject that uh, was covered in an excellent paper entitled Sherry's War. And this is about Judeo-Christianity, Judeo-Christians, and this is a piece, a series, that was written by Chuck Carlson in 2001. And this is before the use of the term Christian Zionism was even used. It was referred to as Judeo-Christianity. And, of course, there are big advocates like Jerry Falwell, who was a Judeo-Christian and called himself that. And I believe it wasn't too much longer. He was actually, uh, in one of the stories here, he was in Israel and helping with Ariel Sharon running for prime minister of Israel back at that time. And, of course, we know that Jerry Falwell was blessed by the state of Israel. They gave him a a corporate airplane, I think it was a twin-engine plane. Anyway, what we're going to talk about is Sherry, who represents so many Judeo-Christians, or what we now refer as Christian Zionists. And I'm going to have Chuck introduce how, we're not sure if we can remember exactly how Sherry found us, but the issue at the time, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, was the issue of slavery, supposedly, in Sudan. And it was a big money-raising activity freeing slaves for a lot of missionaries. Chuck, why don't you chime in here and give us a little background on Sharia. And perhaps you can remember how she found us. But anyway, she found us and engaged us. And we want to discuss one of her letters at least and we would invite people to actually look at the series war series there's six parts that are available on the website it's quite fascinating and what chuck said almost 12 years ago rings true today there really hasn't been much change other than this change in names or the the addition of the concept of Christian Zionism. And so we'd like to talk a little bit how Sherry found us. It was obviously one of the pieces that we wrote at the time we were talking about the issue, supposed issue of slavery in Sudan. It was a very lucrative business, if you will, for missionaries. There were lots of funds to be raised on this so-called freeing the slaves in Sudan.
2: Right. And without going into the issue of slavery in Sudan, because it's kind of an old issue and we'd have to reheat the whole thing, Carrie was a member of Calvary Community Church in the North Valley of Phoenix, Arizona, a very big prominent church. We didn't know that when she wrote to us. We don't know how she heard about us, but our work was getting around among these missionaries. And she wrote in and she wrote a very typical letter for a Christian Zionist, one that uh, was so so typical of what followers of Christian Zionists are taught that we kind of made an issue of it and we uh, made a whole series explaining about the Sherry's among us. And so I think it would be appropriate to read Sherry's letter as someone who we later came to know her quite well. Uh, but... Uh, At this time, of course, that we received the letter, we knew nothing at all about Sherry.
1: Leslie, why don't you read this first letter to Chuck from Sherry. It's very well written. She's very articulate.
3: Sherry, to WHTT, dear Chuck, Israel, God's chosen people, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. In Genesis 15, 18, 13, 15, 26, verses 2 and 3, and 28, 13, God speaks of giving his covenant with Israel and the land that he gives them. Other verses that speak of the land being given to the Jews is found in Exodus 68, Leviticus 20:24, 20, and Jeremiah 77. The scriptures speak of the Jews as being chosen people, and then she mentions several verses from Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Psalm, and Isaiah. These are only a few of many others that could be cited. The name Israel, referring either to the people or the land, is found more than 2,500 times in the Bible and referenced to the Jews more than a 1,000 times. The Old Testament prophets declare that the Jews are a chosen people and that God has a special destiny for them and for the land which he has given them. The New Testament makes the same declaration. Peter referred to the Jews as the, quote, the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our father Abraham, unquote. Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Paul spoke of the Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as those to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus of Nazareth was born a Jew of the tribe of Judah and of the household of David, according to the genealogy of his mother, given through Joseph's father-in-law, Mary's father, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 31. The genealogy back to David of Joseph, who, though not Christ's father, was the head of the household, is given in Matthew Chapter 16, verse 16. Like Jesus himself, the original 12 disciples were all genuinely Jewish, as was the early church. The first Gentiles were not converted until some years after Pentecost. Nor did significant numbers of Gentiles come into the church until even later in the city of Antioch. It was there these Gentile believers who were first called Christians, Acts chapter 11, verses 9 through 26, even then, for many years, the leadership of the church remained Jewish and was centered in Jerusalem. Kar Christiansen, former leader of Norway's Christian People's Party, when asked about his long-standing love and support of Israel, replied, it came from my mother's milk, unquote. He was born into a deeply religious evangelical Lutheran family and grew up hearing his father read the Bible. Such love for Israel and Jews worldwide is taught not only in the Old Testament but in the New as well and characterizes all true Christians. Roman Catholicism is largely responsible for promoting the concept that the Jews ought to be killed for killing Christ. No such teaching can be found in the New Testament, nor did the early church ever practice it. The Romans, not the Jews, were in power and could have released Jesus instead of executing him. Some Christians confuse Israel and the church. The major promise to Israel for the last days is that she will be gathered from the nations where God scattered her to dwell once more in the promised land and that Christ will rule over her from Jerusalem, a promise that would be meaningless for the church. The church was never cast out of any land and it was never promised that she would return to the land from which she was cast out as God promised Israel. Israel is distinguished from the church for all time by the land which God gave to her. Unfortunately, Israel's leaders and the vast majority of Israelis do not believe God's promises in the Bible, nor do they heed his warnings. Who can read the words of our Lord Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem and not be moved by his love for his people? He knew the awful consequences of their rejection of him, which all the prophets had foretold. Consequences that came true in part in 70 A.D. when the city was destroyed and consequences far worse which still lie ahead for Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Luke chapter 19 verses 41 through 44 and Matthew chapter 23 verses 37 through 39. If Jesus loves his people, should we not follow his example? Until Christ appears and is recognized by his people, Israel will continue to displease God, to be abused by godless nations, which all finally attack her at Armageddon, and to suffer God's judgment. The prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 39 And she names various verses, will be fulfilled at the end of the great tribulation when Christ returns to rescue Israel and to establish his millennial kingdom. As stated in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, the Lord himself will rescue Israel. God has a covenant with Israel that he will not break. Why he chose these people is a mystery but it is a fact that he did. God is sovereign, and his ways are not our ways, and it is not our place to question. There is much more that could be said on this subject, but hopefully this will give an adequate overview.
1: In him, Sherry. Okay, thank you. Well, that's kind of like, this whole thing is kind of like eating an elephant. Where do you start? It's a. This is a big... Thing. we start out of course with Genesis 12 to 3 Chuck that this is amazing actually that uh, it's, it's you know she's got very good eloquence here and so forth and there's certainly deep belief that uh, she believes this very fervently
2: the best way to deal with Christian Zionists is to start with what they consider to be to be the beginning and uh, make sure that that's true and if the beginning is not true then don't go any further what sherry's whole litany is based upon giving literally hundreds of scriptural verses and most followers of christian zionists can't even begin to do all of that i don't know if she copied this down from someone or if she'd actually committed some of this to memory or if she was looking at notes from a pastor or how but this is very typical of the barrage that you receive from a Christian Zionist. And you have to go back to uh, where they began, and we learned this very quickly in dealing with them, and then examine the first thing they say, which is almost always Genesis 12, and then see if that really does make sense, if 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 their beginning makes any sense. Of course, the promise of the land to Israel is the substance of the whole conflict in the Middle East. And whatever every Israeli will uh, do is he will cite Genesis 12.3, and almost every Christian Zionist will do the same thing. And, of course, we found out that their arguments about Genesis 12.3 are wrong, not just exaggerated, but they're untrue, and that they're all based upon interpretations placed upon them that are found in the Scofield Reference Bible uh, back in the 1908 or 09 version. If we go back to Genesis 12.3, we find out that Sherry here was saying that God promised the present-day Jews the state of Israel forever. That's what she's essentially saying here. Well, there was nothing like that in Genesis 12.3. In the first place, there were no Jews in in the time of Abraham. The word Jew was not invented until uh, some 3,000 years later. And the people who are today Jews don't practice what Abraham practiced at all. There's practically no similarities between what Abraham's laws were of the Ten Commandments and what Jews today practice. And even in uh, Jesus' time, the problem, of course, was that Jesus' attacked, is that uh, those people who called themselves Israelites or Judeans in the time of Jesus didn't call themselves Jews. The word was uh, still uh, 1,400 years away. And so the whole precept that Abraham gave something to the Jewish race, then 1,000 years later, uh, now 3,000 years later plus, is Sherry's initial mistake. So if we were sitting down to debate with Sherry, we would say, well, Sherry, unfortunately, if we can't believe the first thing you say, we, there's nothing that you say that we can believe. So let's make sure that the first thing you say is accurate. Let's go back to Genesis 12, 3 and study it and see if this is really what God was trying to say in the book of Genesis. The idea, I think, with Christian Zionism is it is always built upon a house of straw and that invariably starts with those first verses in Genesis now we've discussed these many times in the past and our DVD the roots of Christian Zionism and the the later DVD called tragedy and turning are both focused entirely uh, upon this Genesis 12 passage involving the land and what we found is that once you demolish that foundational statement then each one of these additional prophecies that, of the dozens of places that Sherry goes, generally fall apart with their own weight. Or if if you can read them in context and look at them with more traditional Bible scholars, generally each one of them pertains to some other prophecy that's already taken place somewhere else in the Bible and that had nothing to do with Israel and the present day state of Israel.
1: Well, it seems to me as if they're looking actually if the Bible is a telescope, they're looking through the old testament at the New Testament instead of the other way around. I mean to look at the stars you look at the you look at the end where yeah. the the objects you're looking at it gets bigger because if you look at it the other way it gets smaller. If you're looking at the opposite end of the telescope to make an analogy here And so it's as if they don't use the New Testament as the The microscope, if you will, the New Testament to read the Old Testament and see how it pointed to the coming of Jesus and the lineage.
2: Exactly right. And we we have today in our our studies the books of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and the books of Paul and others. And these are the most recent writings that... Exist, some of them actually do exist in old manuscripts that were that go back to the first century. But the account of Genesis that took place, since, we think, a thousand years before Christ or more, in somewhere in the land of the Chaldeans, and some possibilities of of where Abraham did go, are really an ancient history that was written down by, well, it was it was carried by word of mouth for. Tens of centuries before it was ever written down at all. Uh, So the passages, of course, uh, about the new covenant, Jesus being the new covenant, were what the book of Genesis was really pointing to. It was not pointing to the land ownership of, of a certain piece of property in some future date yet to be determined. It was actually talking about the covenant and the coming of Jesus Christ this was the promise that God gave to Abraham in uh, you shall, I shall make a great nation of you, and through you shall all the people of the world be blessed." Well, that blessing was not through the state of Israel, or the ownership of land by the state of Israel, it was through the coming of Jesus Christ. So looking at the prism of the Old Testament, looking at the Old Testament, through that prism, you see an entirely different picture than Sherry paints, but she does build this land ownership. On this Genesis 12, as does almost every Christian Zionist, they almost invariably start there. If you would ask, Sherry, please, Sherry, tell me what the most important chapter and verse that you can possibly cite to to make your position. Almost invariably, you'll be told uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And I will bless them that bless you, curse them that curse you, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Sherry then turned out to be someone who we wrote back to, and we wrote this account about how Christian Zionists think, and it's carried out in these four papers called Sherry's War. You know, it's almost dangerous to read everything that Sherry writes, because as I sit and listen to it, it sounds kind of overwhelming. It sounds like Sherry really knows what she's talking
1: about. What she really knows is what someone else told her she should talk about. That's right. Leslie, you had a comment. It, it shows
3: to me that it's generations of Schofield Bible at work that's ingrained in this kind of circular thinking.
2: That's exactly right, Leslie. And again, there are other study Bibles that have come along in later generations and later decades, Schofield being the first of the a prominent ones that we know about today because we don't really read the works of Edward Irving and uh, and John Nelson Darby today, so we don't know that they said some of the same things that Cyrus I Schofield said. But what Schofield did was he wrote an account of Genesis 12-3, and then he wrote two pages of footnotes, or I should say that he wrote some of them, and then his successors added on to them to where they ended up with two half pages of footnotes telling us what this little story that God told Abraham was supposed to mean. And then we're supposed to believe that that what the footnotes tell us is what God meant. The writers of the study Bibles like Schofield don't leave it to us to figure out in our own mind what God was saying to Abraham, assuming, of course, that God did talk to Abraham. And many would say that there's no proof of that, but we, we don't take that position. We simply say, fine, if God did speak to Abraham, then let's look at the words that uh, that are recorded rather than those written 2,000 years later in footnotes. And all of this business about the ownership of the land being the subject is not in the text, but it is in the footnotes. And this, of course, is where Sherry gets off the track by adopting these ideas of Cyrus I. Schofield. And then later we found out that she was under the tutorage of a very prominent Christian Zionist pastor with a megachurch in Valley of the Sun there in Phoenix, Arizona. Calvary Community Church, right? Isn't that the name of it?
1: Right. And Um, Chuck, as you recall, they were so Christian Zionist when we had our first vigil there. They were so indignant when we held signs like, Blessed are the peacemakers, choose life, not war that they went inside and brought the israeli flag and ran it up their flagpole <laughs> to the top of the flagpole. Yeah, right pictures too. <laughs> yeah. And
2: and so they displayed for us their proclivity. So that's where of course Sherry got her tutoring is in that church. I don't know if we ever had a, a first-hand dialogue with Sherry person to person or not. I don't I'm not sure I remember ever having a chance to talk to her one-on-one. But if, if she was here and if we were talking to her, I'd say, just a minute, Sherry, we'd you you read your entire letter in which you cited 50 or 60 Bible passages. But uh, we seriously doubt whether you can prove any of these are true, but we're going to start with the first one. We want to talk to you about Genesis 12.3 and where you get the idea that this is God giving land to the present-day Jews. And uh, in dealing with a Christian Zionist, that's exactly what you have to do. We also also found out that if you get into a professional debate with one of their leaders, like uh, John Hagee or another that I debated with one time, that this
3: tactic also
2: works very well. And that if you insist that they prove their point before they go on to their second of, uh, of 125 different biblical quotes, uh, you'll find out that they never get by the first one. And this is the uh, trick of dealing with Christian Zionists is, is really examine what they say from the very beginning and not look at the whole mosaic.
0: You're not looking
2: at a, at a house that's painted from the end to end, from stem to stern. You're looking at the first dab of paint that Sherry puts on her canvas. And that's got to be right or the rest can't be right.
1: Well, that's right. And I, in her letter here, there's no mention of Galatians. And we'll quote this again. We've said this before. And it's quoted something similar with this in other books by Paul but in Galatians chapter 3 starting in verse 15 brethren I speak in the manner of men though it is only a man's covenant but yet it is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made he does not say and to seeds as of many but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ Jesus. That seems pretty obvious to me. I Your point is so well made
2: that you will never find a Christian Zionist quoting from the book of Galatians. It practically never happens. And if they did, they would have to actually lie about what's in it. So they basically avoid it. There are hundreds of passages in the New Testament Christian Zionists never quote, There are many passages that have actually, the context of them has been altered and changed. And in some cases where they can't simply switch the context by writing a clever footnote, uh, the writers have actually refuted the words of people like Paul and even Jesus himself. So Christian Zionism is a political movement that Sherry considers a religion. Uh, But to the people that invented it, created it, stimulated it, caused it to happen and promulgate it, it is a political movement. And the leaders generally know this. They generally know that it is a business and that it is a political movement because, of course, they benefit from the politics of it. The people like Sherry, of course, was someone who was having money extracted from her, and she was actually supporting this missionary in Sudan. They actually visited him, I I do think, somehow, and gave to him to buy slaves. They gave to him to do all kinds of things that did not even exist. Uh, so people like Sherry may sound like absolute authorities, but they're actually victims of Christian Zionism. They're being taken advantage of. Not to mention that they mislead their own children, and their families, and their neighbors, and their friends. They say things which are foolish, and uh, which they, some of them will hopefully later regret, and that they are used by the pastors who teach them. It's almost a case of uh, that we should have a separate word for the Sherry's. We shouldn't really call her a Christian Zionist, because she is, though she's very intelligent and bright, very much like the C.W. who we talked about and we heard from only uh, last week, who had almost the same story as Sherry, and who uh, was adamantly in favor of war against the Iranians and considered that the people of Gaza should be really needed to be annihilated because they were in the way of history. He, of course, a Christian Zionist devotee, who was, of course, also being used. He wasn't a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was not making money from anything he did. He was probably giving money, but as as was Sherry. In every way, taken advantage of, used, abused, and the worst abuse of all, of course, is turning away from Christ's words themselves. Generally speaking, very little is said by Christian Zionists uh, from the words of Jesus himself. And uh, invariably, the words about peace, love, love your neighbor, love even your enemy, are pretty much left out of the jargon of Christian Zionism because they have a hard time explaining how these square with the idea of the massive annihilation that they're anticipating.
1: Right, because they use this as a formula. It's, like a, it's, a, it's a very precise formula, and Israel is part of the equation, the physical state. And so if you take Israel out of the formula, then it doesn't work. But the good news, actually, at the same church that Sherry Cherry went to, there was a lady named Renee who actually was influenced by Christian Zionist thought and did some investigation on her own and actually came out of the church, and she led some vigils for We Hold These Truths in front of that church. So there's always those kinds of stories that people that do wake up and see the inconsistencies of these dogmas, the religious dogmas.
2: We also had experiences with Christian missionaries who were part of this uh, slave trade in Sudan. One of them was named Jacobson. And he was a a Christian missionary who was actually working and was part of this purchasing the freedom of slaves and eventually refuted that there was slavery there and did expose that the entire thing was a scam of people who you would not even call Christian Zionists or just opportunists who were basically making money off the sherrys by tapping them for money to buy the freedom of slaves who were not slaves at all. And so wherever you find... Christian Zionism, you find elements of brutality, you find elements of falsehood, you find elements of untruth, though the people like Sherry believe they're very truthful and don't can't even imagine that something they're saying could be false and planted in their own minds. Wherever you find Christian Zionism, you do find this element of, of deceit and falsehood that is, invariably springs up
1: from it. Well, we can actually thank Sherry for challenging us because it helped us formulate our concept of Christian Zionism resulting in these papers and then several years down the road our videos on the subject. So it has been an enlightening process for all of us here at We Hold These Truths and we hope that somebody listening to this podcast might also, want to challenge us, and maybe they'll have an epiphany and and believe some of what we're saying. We've talked here
2: about Genesis 12:3 and how it's falsely portrayed by Christian Zionists. This is the essence of uh, the 32-minute video, the tragedy and the turning. It is available to every listener here simply by clicking on it and listening to it. If you do that, you get to about a seven-minute segment. That deals strictly with this in a very factual way and discusses those verses much more thoroughly and in detail than we want to go into it tonight. And we'd like to refer you to there and have you listen to that, and you will see how Christian Zionism is false at the very beginning, the very root, at the very the very first quote that comes out of the mouth of almost every Christian Zionist when you ask them for their best shot. Give me your best shot. It will usually be 12, Genesis 12:3, 12, and it's invariably a
1: entirely misrepresented great well thank you Chuck and thanks for everybody's input
0: thanks for listening be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and please visit our website whtt.org you will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles also you can order our new video Christian Zionism the Tragedy and the Turning part 1